Hello, you're listening to Under the Skin from Luminary with me, Russell Brand. This week I spoke to Duncan Trussell. Duncan Trussell is a stand-up comedian, podcaster and actor. He wrote and performed on Fuel TV's sketch show Stupid Face and guest starred on HBO's Curb Your Enthusiasm, Comedy Central's Drunk History and Adventure Time. He tours regularly as a stand-up and has his own fantastic podcast, The Duncan Trussell Family Hour. His new animated series, The Midnight Gospel, is streaming now on Netflix. He's fucking fantastic. I've like really, really loved him. This is a fantastic podcast, you know. Uh, like he's got, he's a free flowing, Kaufman esque sort of Jim Carrey ish, like rolling sort of prog rock, strange comics, psychedelic cosmonaut. Buddhist track. I mean, he's like he's a very interesting, strange, beautiful man. I really, really like him, and I want to go on his podcast. I w- want to, I want to comb parts of his body that don't have hair on them while he sleeps, just a, by way of a sensual expression. That's what I've come down to. Listen, before we get into that podcast, um, let's have a look at some of the comments from Bob Roth. The Bob Roth episode. There aren't any from Bob Roth himself. But Nina Lavoca, did you listen to that? Bob Roth, he's a, he runs the David Lynch Transcendental Meditation Foundation. He's a fantastic human being. He taught me to meditate. He's a wonderful man. And it was a wonderful episode. And Nina Levon would agree. She says, meditation changed my entire life. I cannot recommend it more. Thank you, Russell. Sending out love to this amazing community. Yeah, all right. P.59, I'm a person who went to prison three times. And when I went back the fourth time... I had finally the willingness to try anything to fix myself. I started practicing yoga and meditation. That was a year ago, and I'm free with a family and live beyond what I ever imagined I could have. Oh, what a relief, mate. It worked for me. I believe it could reduce crime and other issues related to people just not being okay with themselves or their situation. Yeah, you're right about that, mate. We're all looking for something. We're all reaching outward for something that's within. We've got to know these techniques the same way as we would. We've got to know the alphabet. We've just got to know the basic, the basic lexicon of being. We're all trying to resolve our problems, groping around in appetite-based fantasies. Leroy Kerwood goes, at Rusty Rockets, truly learning and receiving much from the Luminary podcast, Under the Skin, must recommend to everyone. Thanks, yeah, please do. Brilliant questions, analysis, guests, balanced inquiry. Need, a needed voice, an example of enlightened discussion. Well, that's really that's a really good review. Thanks, Leroy Kerwood, you beauty. We should be able to reward people. We should reward people. Leroy Kerwood should be rewarded. What do you want, a T-shirt, a hat, me to comb a hairless part of your anatomy, a new offer that I'm offering exclusively to males? Well, Leroy, sending you serious love and gratitude. Okay, let's get into Duncan Trussell now. Get ready for a rip-roaring conversation. I didn't have time to pause or to reflect. It's just a, a glorious slalom through the uh, neurons of a madman, a synaptic pine forest. You know, like in Return of Jedi, when they go on those sort of bikes and have to zip through pine trees? That's what it's a bit like. It's like that. Duncan Trussell, beautiful human. Enjoy this. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Duncan Trussell, thank you very much for coming on Under the Skin. 
Thank you for having me. I admire you, as I've already told you, in our personal relationship that's lasted uh, in less than a minute, but it's already quite intimate. Yes, it really is. Because I feel like possibly you could have a relationship for five years and, and not traverse the emotional territory we've just crossed. We've, we've laughed. You've been very honest about your feelings. I've been honest about my feelings and my respect yes. and admiration for you. Yes, I've admitted that I was nervous. I woke up at 5.30, unable to sleep because I was going to have this conversation with you. And then I just went in my studio and just muddled around on the synthesizers. That's what I've been doing. I've become so fascinated by you, mostly, as I said, by listening to you on Rogan and then watching your uh, brilliant animation series, Midnight Gospel, on Netflix, which I really, really enjoy. And I imagine it's doing really, really well. Thank you. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. People really like it, thank God. Yeah, I'm not surprised. It's, it's beautiful. Uh, please don't take this the wrong way. I watched like uh, four or five of them on the bounce. With I've got a three-year-old, and both of us were just well into it. I guess because uh, your animator, he's like the adventure time guy, isn't he? That's right. Yeah, Pendleton Ward. And it's But it's not just him. We had It's hundreds of animators, right. and, he, and he did this... Uh, the way he managed everything is by just empowering everyone to sort of follow their instincts and it created this real communal group mind thing that is pretty amazing so yeah i it was pendleton it was me as a hundred other people it was a really weird experiment that uh worked out uh thank god but yeah he just we we opened up the floodgates so to speak and let everyone have a voice in creating the show and somehow that created this wonderful merger of people that I think a lot of the people ask me about the intentionality of certain symbols and stuff in the show. And some of it was completely unintentional. It just appeared, which uh, my meditation teacher says, that's just what happens when you get enough people sharing an intent. That's beautiful. I've also heard that, you know, sometimes creators don't have specific intention with regard to some of the like you know you could say more important things that they've achieved like don't you find like if you when you chat to musicians that they just can't really even tell you what it is they've done or why they've done it and yours it does seem like you know that you're i think both conversationally and with the work of yours that i'm familiar with that you trust yourself and are like interested in flow states and getting into yes yeah. For sure. And this is something I've always wondered about you because sometimes, you know, you're just like blowing out so much that's really brilliant and it's happening really fast. It's, it's, I think it's one of when people think about you, that's what they think about. Or one of the things they think about is you have this ability to really very quickly articulate stuff that is quite complex. And I have watched you do that over the years and just been amazed by it. And I wonder what you think, where you think those words are coming from. Or, you know, do you ever explore that? Like, what's the origination point for language? What I feel like increasingly, Duncan, you know, like I'm in a recovery from, for, you know, like drug and alcohol dependency. And where that's 
where that that journey sort of originates, at least from a 12, pe- 12 step perspective, with the acknowledgement that you have constructed an identity, a self-centered and egoic identity that don't serve you, that is um, somewhat bogus. And through continually trying to augment that identity, you've been led into your addiction. It's like a sustenance system for this curious, um, what do I want to say, this sort of like um like uh i want to say like i don't know not like a zombie but like an, an homunculus art- <laughs> yeah let's say call it a homunculus that you've sort of cre- <laughs> yeah that you've created and then artificially sustained and like and as of, the more and more i've been willing to let go of that and i must say i find it very very difficult and uh, one of the things i wanted to ask you about really was like some of the methods that you use to engage with yourself more deeply um the one the thing i find it very difficult but the more i do that the more i feel like there is something else even for this like latter part of my life for this next part of my life i just was talking to i talk to a therapist every week and i was just saying that i still sometimes want greatness i still want impact i still want significance i still want power but i started to feel like all of those things have in the past been remedies to my own neurosis and inadequacy. And how do you repurpose this still this yearning to connect, to sort of be engaged with power, with less superficial and commodifying impulses that, you know, the ones that I feel like have governed me up in the first part of my life? God, if you know, who knows? It's a daily conquest or battle. To, every day I have these embarrassing uh commodification thoughts really embarrassing you know where uh it's now that especially that i'm using dialogue from the podcast in this series now when i'm podcasting my mind is thinking well if we get a season two i hope the audio is good because i really want to use that in season two and then it disconnects me from what's happening which is the reason that i got into podcast in the first place is because of the sense of connection that forms between two people and the that shared space within which all these incredible moments happen linguistically, which to me is is a miracle. But anytime, you know, the, all the other stuff is static, isn't it? It just gets in the way. This reminds me of something I read once in a grimoire that I got scared about and I actually gave it away because it freaked me out, man. But uh, in the beginning of the grimoire, it was talking about uh, in general, the reason you don't hear about the great practitioners of magic is because they get so close to the Godhead, they dissolve completely and their ego is no longer there and they, they're gone. They're just basically gone. There's no more intent to you will to power or whatever because they've sort of, I guess you could say, woken up into it and from the dream of being that homunculus, you know, and that is sort of the one of the did you ever read the wizard of earthsea by ursula k Le Guin? No. oh it's great but it, it talks about the dangers of for a wizard of turning yourself into a dolphin is that if you stay a dolphin too long you'll forget that you're a wizard and then you won't come back and so many dolphins are just wizards who forgot that they once were uh, land animals and similarly i think the more you practice you i've noticed uh, this strange realization of like, oh, fuck, I'm gonna have to let go of the whole thing, man, like the whole project, like the whole thing. And it, but then not, what I'm up against right now is like, do you even have the choice of letting go? Or is that just more of a trick the homunculus is playing on you to make you think that you're doing anything at all? 
Yeah, it's interesting how we repackage things semantically. I heard a little while ago that under scrutiny, it would be revealed that most people, when they talk about in wanting to be enlightened, are really saying, I want to feel better. It's no no different from yeah. like, a, just want a massage. I want someone to make me ejaculate or just want yes. a cake, you know. Um, like this thing yeah. you said there, mate, about like a, how a sort of a primary conscious force that's interacting with uh, uh, like a pa- like great power, like a wizard, could embody a dolphin and then forget that. Do you, it gave me a little bit of a shudder that uh, of kind of oh yeah that's what's happening now that we mm. we are occupying a, a secondary identity do you ever have a sense like uh, like i've heard you speak a lot about consciousness i've heard you talk a lot about psychedelics and it seems to me that you are you know shamanically level shifting quite a lot mm. where do you stand on that oh yeah I, well I, that that is for sure the you know, I was just having this conversation with a friend of mine who is this incredible tattoo artist named Robert Ryan. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but he's amazing. And he has his, own, he's, you know, uh, created his own temple. He has a guru and he has a, a, a temple, a beautiful temple. And uh, I was talking to him about something that's happened to me twice in my life uh, when I've had a real strict meditation practice where my whole body starts shaking. And it's the weirdest of weirds. And, I, you know, for some reason, I'm this is, by the way, me being up early because I'm nervous to talk to you. So I'm like texting my friend in New Jersey who's like at his temple doing this thing with his guru, which are like, I can't remember the name. It's uh, something to do. It's like um, New Year's resolutions, but you do it for the mother and they're doing it for 70 days straight or something every morning. And uh, so I don't know. I just randomly started talking about the time I was chanting Hare Krishna all the time strict vegetarian diet, taking cold showers, waking up at 4 a.m. and how, you know, a little Radha Krishna puja table. And just all of a sudden, my whole body just started shaking. It was terrifying. It was, and, and as someone who's taken LSD hundreds of times, to suddenly experience a thing that is not connected to a psychedelic, that isn't, you, you know, at least when you're taking LSD, you know, there's a come down. You have some, I, I know you know this, you chart it out. You know, when you peak, you can kind of calculate the hours when you're coming down. You know the whole thing. And there's something in that that gives you at least some small sense of control when you're upshifting, as you were saying. But this contact with no induction other than chanting, and, and you don't know when you're going to come down. How, am I going to stop shaking? What is this? Why is this happening to me? Well, he was explaining to me that it's the connection of some energetic points in the in the body that happen through a, a practice. But to answer your question, I think the methodology of psychedelics to achieve that upshifting is one of my favorite methods because I'm rather lazy. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's easy. And but but also my my teachers who don't forbid it at all, what they usually say is the problem with this that is that you know you come down is the problem and that it produces these legitimate states of waking up, but then bam, you're right back down into your identity again. And that, that can become a really frustrating game where you're sort of playing footsie or whatever with eternity and you, out of a sense of like being, you know, you don't want to like 
you don't want to reckon with what you were mentioning earlier, which is like, shit, I think I'm a secondary thing. I think I'm a, a secondary thing that's connected to a much bigger thing, and I don't want to let go of this dream. So I'll just kind of wake up every once in a while. That that's I hope that answered your question. It certainly does answer loads of questions. I mean, like, I feel like um, there's two things that I want to sort of cover two poles that come up for me there so I know that you become a dad around the time that I became a dad and one of the yeah. things when you become a parent is there's these you know I've got two kids like these people I love so much now that I almost can't bear that it's an illusion I can't bear that it's not real I can't bear yeah. the idea of them my two little daughters that are close in age of well, them one day being little old ladies at a bus stop mm. or whatever I think it when I see old ladies if I'm when I'm out and about because usually when I'm out and about I'm cruising for the elderly so I keep a me too <laughs> I keep a particular eye on the decrepit, Duncan. If I see one of them at the corner of my eye, I slow right down. The window's coming down. Oh, you look real old. But like yeah, a, white bandana, white bandana around the neck. That means you're into that. Oh, <laughs> that's a nice way of signifying it without yeah. the, the need for language, which is so easy to misinterpret. But like when I yes. see them, I feel like, God, my kid, I'm just going to one day be someone that they talk about, you know, oh, yeah, mm. you're our dad, like, you know, to grandchildren or whatever. And I have to somehow reconcile that nostalgia for as yet unlived events with the sense that, no, the love that I feel for them is my own connection to non-local impermanence, which I can mm. maintain and cultivate if I'm willing to concede to certain spiritual practices. Now, me, I ain't allowed no um, mind or in substances because I spoil it you know with the old addiction but i'm sure you'll be aware connoisseur that you are that a lot of people say that the psychedelics are you know good for people with addiction issues generally people that are tackling them rather than me 17 and a half years clean desperate well not desperate but no yeah. real plans to go back there but i still like from the first time i took lsd when i was a kid that realization which i now know is something that's alluded to in the bhagavad gita of like Oh, yeah, I remember this. This is a reality. Oh, I'm not this guy. You know, and like yeah. dealing with that as a little kid, I've heard you say that now, like, you know, with like your, um, that your concession to fatherhood is that you would consult a psychiatrist before uh, any kind of psychedelic voyaging. Yes. Like you would take it sort of seriously. And I've always Absolutely. thought that those drugs should be undertaken under supervision. And like, it, what, what, what is your relationship with psychedelics like at the moment? And, and what recent realizations have you been hit with? Well, you know, I've got a kid right now. So my relationship with psychedelics is, you know, anything that's going to make it so that if there's an emergency situation, that d depends on me being completely clear well, you can't do it around a toddler i mean these are machines of chaos you they they are it is i don't know if you've heard of this virtual there's a virtual reality game i don't know the name of it it's uh it's for two people one person plays the toddler one person plays the parent and the goal if you play the toddler is to try to kill yourself before the parent can catch you so it's like stick your finger in a light socket run into the oven and if you you know if you kill yourself you win but i it's amazing how they are so good at figuring out the most dangerous part of the yard the most dangerous part of the house and they go for it so you know i think right now in my life you know we it's incredible it would be incredibly irresponsible to <laughs> use psychedelics around a toddler in the sense that what if they start choking you know or you know all the things that you have to be completely aware of so 
I'm, you know, I'm, I'm so boring now. When I was younger, I think I was a little bit more on the Timothy Leary side of things. Just, you know, merge with the Godhead, upshift your circuitry, you know, become part of the divine cosmic circuitry, no matter what it takes. Don't get fooled by Maya, the illusions of the world, and just go for it, man. Now, I, I have experienced just what you're talking about. On a trampoline with a toddler, suddenly I'm with Krishna, suddenly I'm in Vrindavan, suddenly this is paradise, I'm experiencing something outside of time, and that really, uh, it pairs nicely with my psychedelic experiences in the sense that I can like, I have this embarrassing metric, which is like, I know what it's like to be on 500 micrograms of LSD. I have an idea of the combination of depersonalization and connection that happens via psychedelics. And to suddenly have that just being on a trampoline with a toddler is so astounding. And, 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 uh, you know, Chogyam Champa Rinpoche talks about this kind of uh, healthy sorrow. That is, the, this healthy sorrow that you get when you realize, oh my God, my whole life I've been barking up the wrong tree, kind of, you know? I've been like, not, and again, I'm trying to avoid making a hierarchy of spirituality and psychedelics because I think that's a real trap and uh, an incredible disservice to people who do benefit from psychedelics, and I'm one of them. But that being said, you know, there was a story I read that Ramdas met these hippies and they were like, do you want to take acid with us? And he said, well, how about I show you something that will get you a million times higher than you can get on LSD? And I remember reading that when I was a kid and being like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> no, 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 old man. That's not possible. And now in my old age, it's like, oh, my God. Not only is it possible, it's it's right there in front of us as parents every single day. And that's the heart shattering experience that you're talking about. That combination of wanting to hold on to that kid forever. I don't ever want to lose my 16 month old man. I don't want that form to go away ever, but that's simultaneously damning my child to be a baby forever. Right. And, 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 uh, so that's attachment, but yeah, I think, um, in my old age, my recommendation to anybody who's interested in psychedelics is to uh, go to a good psychologist first. Like, work with it, because god damn, they're good for working through your shit. They're so good for that, you know? But if you, um, if, if you, they also are very good for having a complete manic episode <laughs> if you're bipolar. And they're also very good for becoming incredibly paranoid if you have, like, uh, abuse issues in your past. And they're also really good for fucking up your relationship because you see in someone suddenly something they've been trying to hide from you. And instead of embracing that, you attack it. And you know what I mean? There's so many opportunities using psychedelics to really hurt yourself, which is why in my old age, I think it's good to be very, very careful. Hearing you talk about it like that, Duncan, has helped me to, um, in a sense, evaluate and be aware of the amount of romanticization I've applied just because of the passage of time, because it has been so long. And I'm like you, I'm I'm lazy. I want to be taken away. You know, like yeah. all of my drug use was about wanting to find God, wanting to be connected with God. I didn't have that language. Of course, I didn't then. I just wanted to get out of my head. But, you know, that's a synonym really for find God connected to 
the unified field or how, however you want to term it uh, like what what do you see as the relation uh, look, one of the things that interests me about people that are experienced with psychedelics is it's an sort of an almost a postmodern and somewhat sophisticated way of talking about god without you know the the sort of automatic recourse to atheism that sort of seems to be the dominant mentality in like what we might call like the chattering classes or the in intellectual circles that is considered sort of dumb to believe in god i love you <laughs> oh. the chattering classes <laughs> the automatic recourse to atheism <laughs> i'm taking that forever the automatic i'm sorry to cut you off please continue Beautiful terms. I just wanted to underline them. <laughs> Fantastic. And thank you. Oh, I don't mind being interrupted to be complimented. That's like, you know, normally an interruption, that's a, that's a real assault to my little ego. But to underline something I've said, well, that's feeding the ego further. Yeah, like that. You know, I felt for a long while that space has been ceded to materialism and rationalism precisely because of the huge um, measurable advances in, say, medicine and technology, but at the expense of areas where we have stagnated as a species, spiritual evolution, compassion, compassionate evolution. And I, I wonder if... Do, do you believe that, say, plant medicine, psychedelics can be sort of a, an aspect of the revivification of sacred principles that I believe are a requirement if we're ever to burst out of the bubble of materialistic rationalism that's enclosed us for not just in the m modern era of the last, you know, post Clinton where there, there's no left anymore, but but from really from the from the Enlightenment onwards. I, I, yes, I do. I mean, I think that any, any method, whatever it may be, that gives you even the most temporary uh, remission of your identity is going to produce a, a lifetime of transformation for you. It's a very, you know, uh, Prabhupada, the founder of the Hare Krishna, has described being human as an embarrassing situation. <laughs> and... <laughs> And it is. It's quite cool. embarrassing. And and you, um, there's so much that goes along with it, you know, like like your ego gets bruised, but not just that. You've, you have to have bowel movements. You have to piss. You have to keep drinking water. And there's this weird feeling of like, well, we have to eat. So we're always being driven by this need for food. And then, you know, all the other stuff that goes along with being human. It's really embarrassing. And if you think this is all there is, then you are going to start having a really bad trip. It's no different from when you are getting that feeling that you're never going to come down. And so in this sense, except there is some ominous thing called death, it's some random time that's going to happen where you just suddenly stop being high on the human condition altogether. And that's equally terrifying because we have this amnesia and it's all we've known. And so, you know, I, I think that earlier times... There were periods in humanity, Terrence McKenna, uh, there's a great book, I believe it's called The Archaic Revival, where he talks about the, uh, you know, ancient cultures that were, uh, he creates a differentiation between what he calls dominator culture and uh, I think partnership cultures where, and, and dominator cultures tends to be patriarchal, partnership cultures tend to be matriarchal. And so if you look back at mushroom cults, they often have along with them what appears to be a reverence for some for the goddess you see that 
the pregnant woman figurine, the worship of the pregnant fe the feminine form. And so uh, his premise is that psychedelics instantly connect you to that, specifically what he calls exopheromones, you know, psilocybin, ayahuasca. These are literally the, you know, because plants communicate with each, with each other using some kind of chemical release, which are known as exopheromones. And so his premise is that uh, cannabis, psilocybin, and ayahuasca, any naturally occurring psychedelics are actually communication nodes that the earth is sort of perspiring into the human consciousness to communicate a message regarding our place in the universe and to hopefully compel us to become less destructive. Uh, and so that that's a beautiful way of, of looking at it is that these psychedelics are, are sort of letters from planet Earth to the human psyche regarding what we actually are. And in between that uh, realization of what we actually are, we have this periods in history that are telling us something completely different. You're just a bundle of atoms. You're just a brain. You're just matter. You know, do you know Bob Thurman? Oh, yeah, like Uma Thurman's dad, Buddhist guy. Yes, he, he was at this Ramdas retreat, and I'm pretty sure he thought I was you for a couple of days. He was calling me Russell, and I was flattered. But he's brilliant. He's, he's this wonderful Buddhist scholar, and he talks about how for humans Did we get to... on? Did, me, did I get on with Bob Furman when I was you, when you was me for a retreat? Did you build me a Listen, good relationship? I don't want or when it. I, I see him, is he going to go, get out of my sight? <laughs> I thought you meant, do we make love? Uh, the, the, <laughs> no, not a, a round well, you know, retreat. I don't assume that you're going to make love to Uma Thurman's dad. Well, you should come to a Ramdas retreat. The, <laughs> well, the, anyway, the, what he was saying is to really pull off, to successfully pull off guilt-free eco-destruction, you need to establish a purely materialistic form of everything. Because if you do that, you can dump oil in the ocean because who gives a fuck? <laughs> it's just a bunch of atoms, right? Who cares? This thing is just a mistake, not even a mistake. It's not because a mistake would require a sentient force to create it. It's just some temporary coalescing of atomic particles that have complexified into what we are right now and basically just figure out a way to get as much food in your stomach and to fuck as much as you can build some nice shells and then die and go into nothingness forever. This is the this is the mind state we need for exploitation to work guilt-free. Brilliant. And so that's, well, man, he's brilliant. I love him. And, you know, I think that these psychedelics, they instantly eradicate the ability to have that mind state because what are you going to do when you connect to the, you know, Godhead or whatever you want to call it? It's very hard after that to be as exploitive as you were before. Duncan, when you uh, explain that, it helps me to remember that what we have done is acculturated our appetites, the appetites that are just there to ensure the survival of the vehicle that we're in, like eat food or the vehicle will shut down, have sex or there, you know, that'll be the end of the line. We have, in a sense, uh, deified through culture those impulses. We've sort of sanctified them. In one way, the question is not, whether or not there is a divine, it's where we apply our divine impulse to, what we apply our divine attention to. And currently, and as you've very articulately just described, where that deification lands is on, you know, we need food, we need to consume. It falls uh, onto materialism. We're treating it 
like it is a god. We have, yeah, we have nominated and do revere false idols. You know that um, sort of Christian idea from uh, C.S. Lewis? He talks about like he's uh, he's in his book Mere Christianity. He makes a sort of a case from for Christianity, having previously been an atheist, in which he sort of offers as the main tenet of this argument, like even though you might say. Like that, you know, there's one culture where a person can marry five people and another culture where a person might marry one person. There is, you know, varieties and ethics and moralities in which there is variation. He goes, there are no cultures where a person will be applauded for running away in battle. There's no culture where it's cool to let all your friends down. Saying that, that what is this thing? And I've had this conversation with atheists many times. He's like, I'm not saying you need a God in order to be good. You need a dominant ideal that you're aspiring to attain in order to be good i'm saying what the fuck is good how come how come mm, when you sort of uh, see an image of like oil being you sort of something you go that's not right <laughs> like what, yeah. what who is that in there <laughs> what is that <sighs> what a great what a great question i think that 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 is a question that's worth many incarnations exploring that question and uh looking into the not just what is good, but the whenever we see a thing that we think is good, the the almost um, the almost robot like reaction to it, where you you try to grab it. It's a um, God. There's these great videos on YouTube of people sort of tormenting raccoons. They give them sugar cubes, and you know raccoons wash their food, and so you give a raccoon a sugar a sugar cube, and it'll try to wash it. And then it disappears in the water and the raccoon is like, what the fuck? I did? The food has just vanished. It, it was just here and now it's gone. And I can't think of a better symbol for the situation of a human being encountering that good that you're talking about. You try to grab it, you put a fence around it, protect it, whatever it is that you try to do to hold on to it. And then before you know it, it's just gone. And that's an incredibly frustrating experience that must be a result of i guess you could call it ignorance which is a really sweet and sad thing humans do which god i don't know why i'm like going all hari krishna on you right now uh russell <laughs> i want you to shave your head russell <laughs> but uh the 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 you know one of the descriptions given regarding what you're talking about is imagine if you were addicted to heroin i was but you got hit in, okay but imagine if you got hit in the head oh and woke up in the hospital with amnesia, uh, but you were completely addicted to heroin, but you didn't know what could fulfill this need that you had. And so suddenly you might find yourself like drinking shit tons of, I don't know, booze, you know, finding, getting into sedatives, like this weird sort of like instinctual search to get back to heroin. Well, this is the reverse of that, which is that we're born with this strange form of amnesia and yet still inside of the desire to connect with God, to come home, as it's called. And so there's the, the compulsion to fuck, to get high, to get money, to get power. These are all attempts to try to go home. And, every, and the frustrating thing is every time you get to whatever the particular um, imaginary home that you thought was going to give you what you found, they call it chasing the dragon, is you realize this isn't doing anything for me. I've heard comedians, I never got to do it, but there's a, they talk about after the Tonight Show, you want to kill yourself. 
like you finally, you know, you've been doing stand up so much. You have a great set on the Tonight Show. This is an old, this is an antiquated idea. You're back at the hotel room. You just did it. You were had your great set, but now what? Now what? What are you gonna do now? You you the thing you've been working on for so long. You got it. And now what? You're just in the hotel room, watching Forensic Files, looking at your phone, and you're just where you were before. And so this is that frustrating quality. Maybe that's the circuitry that drives addiction, mm. which is why, you know, I love people who've struggled with addiction uh, because they're, you know, saints, basically. Like if you run into any addict, it's like you're definitely hanging out with someone who is an intense devotee, uh, almost practicing bhakti yoga. The 12-step method is predicated on precisely that principle. In a correspondence between Carl Jung and Bill Wilson, one of the founders of the original 12-step fellowships he points out that in order to uh, overcome addiction you need a spiritual experience a kind of epiphany and the sustenance the ongoing sustenance of a community that will remind you no don't take drugs again remember that that didn't work last time and like it, the the twelfth step, in fact, is you know having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. And like earlier in our conversation, I was saying what begins as you know you don't give up drugs and alcohol, you give up the person that was addicted <laughs> to drugs and alcohol. Wow. Uh, like and you invite yourself into the awareness. The step three is like a, you know yielding, like you hand over all your decisions, you hand over your life and will to the care of God as you understand God. The step seven is you humbly ask God to take away your pro your your problems. I mean, it's so explicitly holy, you know, and it's weird that it's become so, you know, these 12-step organizations are, it's a very, I would say, what do I want to say, radical idea because it's an invitation to re-engage with the sacred. The thing you were talking about before there, Duncan, about like, um, you know, you aspire to something, you achieve it, then you feel empty as beautifully exemplified by the experience of, you know, like when you perform live, if you're touring or whatever, and you go back to a hotel room, the, the feeling I always basically had, as, as I guess, as an uninitiated man, as a, someone who wasn't shown the way out of childhood through, you know, being demarked as an adult, being told this is how you behave. I was unable to hold that space. You know, like having had sometimes, you know, thousands of people and like that elation, the adulation, like all, all of that, you know, ma manufacturing all them narcotics in my own body, all that adrenaline, all of that dopamine, all of that. Like I can't, when I go back to a hotel room, it feels like an affront. Like, no, oh, man, I'm not having this. Something's got to go down. You know, like I needed, like that's what kept me even after chemical dependency, kept me as a sex addict for such a long time. An inability to live on that precipice, to live at that interface of knowing there there is nothing here. There is nothing here. You can't attain it that way. You know, you can't attain it materially. And I, one of the things that recurs to me, perhaps as a result of the 12 steps and part of and, and ongoing therapy, um, what does the wanting want? What even is wanting? This craving, this desire, this urge, what a kind of magnetism. It, could it be that it is our part of the the yearning for union that we are just fulfilling our part of the bargain you know come home come home come back to god stop it but like it's you know living in a culture that doesn't present you with like uh, the the techniques the technologies the ideologies that tells you that we're just a bundle of nerves and atoms and that our function here is to become comparatively successful to engage in systems of dominance and subjugation it just don't make sense to us does it duncan and it's hard to get yeah, out man no. It is. Well, yeah, I mean, you, and this is the, 
I really like. Do you ever get into Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche at no, all? No, I, I mean even when you're like, I, I've heard that before, but I've never learned how to correctly say it. Have you got oh, a mnemonic gosh, device? Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche. I just want definitely. I love it. I love saying it. I will admit it does it good. sound so cool and it feels good to say it. But you know he. He's a very frustrating teacher and very controversial teacher. Is he the one that went into and the booze the, again after or no? Because I know they've, he, they've all got that surname, like that truck. They all got that name. So yeah. I get, don't know which one's which. He was always drinking sake. Always, always drinking, drinking, drinking. And, you know, this is one of the many controversial things about him, uh, which I love. You know, he was Pima Chodron's teacher. And in a great documentary, they ask her about like, what about the fact he was drunk all the time? He was seemingly, what is, what is that? And she's like, who am I to say? I don't know. That's what he was like. <laughs> you know, I don't know. He was my great teacher. He woke me up. Who am I to say? And I think there's something, you know, there are some warnings regarding that. And actually, I, in Buddhism, they have this, and I'm going to mess this up, but they have these, I don't, they, they all gather together every once in a while to sort of recite the sutras and reaffirm what is the, what the Buddha said, what is it? And there's always these questions that come up. And one of them is, should I take on the habits of my teachers? That was one of the first counsels. That was the question. Should I take on the habits of my teachers? Should I do what my teachers do? And I think the answer to that was, uh, is no. Because your teacher's like getting hammered doesn't therefore mean you should be getting hammered or because your teacher's doing this or that. It's, that's not what they're teaching. Chogim Trumpa wasn't Bukowski. He wasn't teaching how to like get drunk. He was teaching these, uh, a, a very confusing, very powerful form of Buddhism, um, which has within it the idea that, you know, we are that wanting, that longing, that desire. You're not going to get rid of it. It's not going anywhere. Give up the project of getting rid of the desire, number one. It's not all you are, but this concept of like, you're gonna feel better, like you said, the enlightenment's gonna make you feel better. When I started working with my meditation teacher, who was Chogyam Trumpa's student, he said to me, um, I just wanna tell you what he told me, and he meant it. This is hopeless, <laughs> hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> Off we go. And it was great. <laughs> yeah, off we go. Because immediately it sort of, you know, allowed me to let go of the, any kind of dreaminess I was having about what was going to happen if I start working with a meditation teacher, that I was going to get the, you know, eternal back massage from the angels or that there was going to be, I was going to turn into a rainbow or something like that. It's a very down to, <laughs> down to earth concept which is like okay first of all just forget it you're not going to get better so let's give that up right now so now you don't have to do you know and this is something pima children says which is anyone who gets into a spiritual practice when if you get into it, the idea that you want to change yourself transform yourself make yourself better it's the same thing as saying i don't like uh -oh. who i am it's an aggression against the self and so if you enter into a practice more with like i'm just going to be as i am right now with all that fucking pain and all that desire and all the confusion and all the addiction and all of it somewhere in there maybe you disrupt the circuitry that has been forming like you so brilliantly put it this thing this this being that you're being invited to abandon by any great 
practice or any great lineage, you know, and, and all the lineages have different ways of coming to terms with it, which all of them remind me of prying a, a, a stuffed animal out of a baby's hand or inviting the baby to let go of the stuffed animal or figuring out a way to allow in a compassionate way a person to realize that's not all you are. And so, yeah, it's a hopeless situation, Russell, I think. I mean, in the sense that you, you're, you're never going to get rid of that suffering. And you, you, it's always going to be there. It's part of being an, a human, I think. You know, and once you realize that, awesome. Then, then you, at least you know when you're getting high or wanting to get high, at least you know, oh, it's not going to work. It's like trying to like, you know, it's a, a fish trying to get dry. You, you're not gonna you can't you're gonna suffer here you know so you like don't yeah uh you practice kind of self-compassion and not being judgmental this other thing i've been thinking duncan is that we should regard our thoughts the kind of what you described as sort of mental static earlier at least i think that's what you were alluding to that we should regard our thoughts as the first layer of the material world rather than as part of our, our personhood as part rather than as part of our selfhood this is the beginning that's the first layer first there's this neurological activity that has a kind of mass and has a kind of charge and a kind of energy you could weigh it if you had sensitive enough instruments you could see it if you had a sensitive enough eyes then there is the world of the senses. Then there is the world of objects, the world of material. And I suppose this is why all of these meditation techniques that we're discussing have generally seem to have like learn to, if God, it's hard to term, isn't it? B become the awareness. You are the awareness. Who is experiencing the body? Who is experiencing the mantra? Who is experiencing the breath? Who is experiencing the feeling of inferiority? You know, like I, I, I jump into the movie so fast, man, because like, you know, I, 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 I take that point about saints, you know, like, like I heard once, only the really fucked up people become saints. Only the people like, you know, I'm going to spend all my time doing drugs and fucking unless I find something that's going to do that job for me, you know, and like, uh, I suppose that's where it begins. It, first in practice, but as I was told by my meditation teacher, Bob Roth, um, who's a you know, TM teacher, he said like, because uh, I go to him, I, was, I want that shit because I get to sometimes, I'm sure you do too, talk to people like say Eckhart Tolle or whatever. And I'm like, Eckhart Tolle, he's in it. Like he's up there. I can, you can tell talking to the dude, there's almost even on the phone, he can convey to you like the feeling of like, you know, you can feel better listening to this guy, you know, because when you hear a psychic, one of those psychics that goes, oh, I can do Reiki to you on the phone. You think, oh, fuck off. But like, actually, if you talk to Eckhart Tolle, that he can convey it to you. And I said to this meditation teacher, I want to be there. I want to be up there. I get there, but I always come back. I always come back here, back down into the filth and the nettles and the scum and the slime, yeah. you know, and he goes, that ain't your path. My meditation teacher said he goes, people like that, he said, like, Michael Singer who wrote Untethered Soul people like Eckhart Tolle them dudes he said are rishis they live at the interface of divine bliss from the oneness he goes you are and he said some sort of word like davitar or something he goes your job is to be in communion you will experience it more in relationship in uh, in discourse that is where you will experience the divine um, but and I felt I don't know I, I kind of liked it that there was a sort of a Sanskrit word for what the fuck it is I'm doing davitar I liked that but I also sort of crave Duncan that like oh man I want out mm. I want the bliss I want the bliss uh, I got bad news for you this is my teacher Nick Turn fucked me up man in a good way and I'm gonna mess it up for you if, if I may try and and also before I do that I do want to say 
uh, I've had the same experience with being on the phone with one of these people and suddenly you're blasted by them and they do it and they do, they do that and it's wild and I don't know what that is. The, ab- the implications are so crazy, but I've had What are them implications, Jerkin, mate? Well, I mean, the implication is that, you know, it's some kind of quantum entanglement, to put it in some scientific terminology that I don't understand at all. Also, the implication is, well, I guess it leads to like what I'm going to say that kind of pops the whole damn balloon because it's like I'm with you, my friend. I'm in the filth and the muck and the mud. I love being human. I love the pain. I love the whole. I love it all. I love it. It's great. I love the confusion. It's beautiful i enjoy it i don't i don't i even though i might say god i would like it to end i don't want it to end and that's why we're here but trump uh this is what ruins it and i've thought about this so much which is that um confusion is a condition of enlightenment meaning that on (laughs) i know it ruins the whole game because you realize that the the moment you are aware that you're confused what part of you is aware of the confusion and then you realize oh shit I can't escape it. That I'm clinging to the confusion because I it, there's no way to avoid the reality that I'm on a continuum of awakening and that I'm just choosing to focus on the confused part is another attempt to burrow into illusion to get out of letting go of the identity. And it just messes it up when you realize like damn it, as as soon as you're aware that you're confused, you know, well Sorry, man, you don't get to be, you don't get to enjoy it anymore because you're not really confused. You're aware you're confused, you know? Yeah, because that's, and there's, there. well, this dude said to me once, like that, you know, I sort of said the example of pornography, you know, and he said, in looking at pornography, which I don't one day at a time do anymore, he goes like, you're trying to, he goes, you're trying to open a channel. He goes, even that is an attempt at attaining the divine. And like, if you, when I think of the, you know, the sort of the climactic experience, the summit of the pornographic journey, like it's like, uh, <laughs> it's in, it's fucking immersive, isn't it? For that moment, yeah. you're like, that's it. You're on the, you're at, a, you're in a pinnacle experience. And for, for yeah. me, I suppose it's like, I, I don't want to come down. I want to live there i want to live there i want to i want to be like some a high-pitched kind of point of (laughs) (laughs) yeah well you know the i once at one of these retreats i asked ramdas you know i told him it seems like you jumped off the diving board and i feel like i've camped out at the very edge of the diving board and i'm i want to jump but i'm i don't i can't jump and he and he said there's no diving board and there's nowhere to jump. You're there. It's you're there. It's 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 like channels, you know. And the whole the the game that we're playing right now, and it's a fun game. I think that's a really important thing to realize is to respect the game, the Leela, the humanness of it all, and to, and to really love it. Even though the moment you really start doing that again, you've lost the confusion, and again you've sort of let go of like the the game. Unfortunately, that's the paradox of it all. But he, he, what he said is you, you should look at your life like a flower, like you're looking at this beautiful flower with all of the stuff, the pornography, the embarrassment of like coming late at night and like not, not having anything to wipe it up with after you just watch some wretched pornography that looks like it was out of Hieronymus Bosch or something, you know, like you found like the just the pit and you dug deeper into the pit and found the perfect 
horrible, horrible thing to watch. And then suddenly you've got cum on your hand. You're like, what am I going to do? But you're kind of tired. <laughs> so you rub it on your underwear or something. And then you wake up and your underwear is all crusted and sticky. How do you love that? Well, that's what you do. Even that, you look at it and you're like, I love you all the way through. Not in like a, you know, egoic way either, but like, it's okay. Like, you know, when my dog, uh, my dog, I have this freaking synthesizer, man, I saved up for, I wanted it for a year and I, a Moog one. And I bought this case for the Moog one. And it was an expensive leather case because I love the thing, cherish it, it's so embarrassing. Left it on the floor, my chihuahua pissed on the case. And it's, I had to throw it away. But, you know, I don't, I'm not mad at the chihuahua over that. And I think the premise here is that you too are, and I are like that chihuahua. We're very transient. We've only been here for a relatively tiny amount of time. And to spend too much amount of time flogging our own backs over wanting to jerk off to porn at night uh, is a form of aggression, really. That being said, it's very easy to spiritual, use spiritual bypass and be like, all right, great. <laughs> I'm going to jerk off for the next 14 hours. You know, there is discernment and you know, figuring out, you know, you have to, especially, man, my friends who are alcoholics, sometimes they'll call me up and it's like, they want me to give them permission to take psychedelics. They're like, I'm thinking about doing a psychedelic journey. And I always say, you call your sponsor right now. This is, I don't know what you're like. I don't know what will happen if you take a psychedelic. What if you take a psychedelic and there's 5% chance that you end up boozing it up, shooting heroin again, a 5% chance. That is not worth it, especially when you, well, if you're a human, but if you got kids, by the way, I'm not insinuating that's what you were saying, but it's like, that's what sucks when you punch your ticket, man. It blows, like it's a, it blows. And I, you know, I, some hippies and I've heard people say, no, actually it can be therapeutic. Al alcoholics can do it. And we know the founder of AA, that's one of the things that helped him heal and that's something that isn't put out front of AA. But man, I, you know, I think that we have to be very careful knowing ourselves very well. That being said, the concept in the tantric Buddhism I'm taught is that the whole damn thing is a temple all the way through the, the semen crusted underwear all the way to the most beautiful peak in the Himalayas a temple all the way through. <laughs> Do you ever, like other than in your professional environments, get into evangelicism or kind of wanting to change the world? Do you ever get, does, does this ever get politicized for you? Given that most of the stuff we've discussed has individual connotations, i.e. materialism, lasciviousness, but these things also have cultural uh, 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 connotations. And furthermore, they kind of intersect with how power operates that, you know, it's like when I think about my own various forms of addiction and the various ideologies, objectives and pursuits that have defined my life, many of them are beyond s culturally sanctioned. They're kind of, um, what do I want to say, sort of imposed almost like the idea of like, hey, if you're a male, you should be sleeping around a lot or, you know, like you should be pursuing money and trying to get famous and stuff. Like, yeah, I still feel like sometimes that I've got the uh, the tendrils of those ideas in my guts because I guess I probably literally do have, you know, and, and like, do you ever feel, Duncan, like you want to influence or impact? Because, like, you know, say Ram Das, who's clearly like, obviously a teacher of yours, like 
he come from a time where there was this sort of coalescence between like uh, spirituality and uh, and politics. Not to mention McKenna. Like that dude sounds like every time he opened his mad mouth, he was trying to bring down the government. <laughs> do you, do, do you, mm. well, where do you stand on the uh, the way that power operates, uh, the way that the st- establishment operates? How does that intersect with your, I must say, rather very sophisticated esoteric spiritual understanding? Well, thank you. Uh, I, you know, um, the, okay. So I play around with this idea a lot because I have to be very careful that I don't. Um, it's somehow easy to like be a coward and then think you're being spiritual or something, you know. And so I have to really be careful with it because I go back and forth a lot because anybody with any brain has, in any sense of compassion at all, looks at the world looks at the antiquated power structures in the world and has a, a, a sense of revulsion, probably a feeling of not only is this wrong, this is wrong beyond measure. And then that's usually followed either by what can be a, a, a really embarrassing attempt to, to try to change things in an aggressive way, uh, which you, almost always results in, in failure. And then that usually leads to a kind of cynicism and bitterness. And then it's a, it's a really dark, uh, slippery slope that leads down. I, but I, so I love the idea of as above, so below. And the idea that we can sort of deconstruct what's happening in the big picture by looking at how we're acting in our own lives. And so one thing I know is that when I start trying to change my friends, when I have an agenda, when I'm on the phone with my friend who I know is going through a rough patch and I even have an inkling of thinking, I'm going to fix you. They sense it. They shut down. The friendship gets fucked up temporarily and it, it's never worked. It has never worked for me. And so one of the things Ramdas says, which I love, is we, the best thing you can do for people around you is to work on yourself. And uh, by by and that you know we have to define working on ourselves. But I would say to go back to what Jung um, wrote to Bill Wilson, uh, right? We need the mystical experience. Once you have this contact with the mystical, there's some hope for you. Because I think wasn't it Freud? Wasn't he working with Freud and Jung? Or someone basically said to him, "You were." I mean, it was Jung who just said, "I can't do anything for you. You're so fucked." I don't know what to do. You've only God can help you is essentially what he was saying is like this. You're I'm sorry. You're out of my pay grade, man. You, there's nothing I can do for you. And so I think if we were to apply that thinking to not just addiction to, you know, the various wonderful substances that are out there, but also just an addiction to, you know, consumer culture, addiction to the pattern of modern society, then you could say, collectively, we need a mystical experience because I don't think there's any hope for us other than that. And if that's the case, how do we have a collective mystical experience? Well, all I can do is try to have that mystical experience myself. And if, but if enough people started doing that, then there wouldn't be much that the gatekeepers could do to stop it. They would find themselves in these rapidly diminishing swaths of imaginary power that would just go away on its own. And there wouldn't be a thing they could do. No one to assassinate. You can't criminalize seeking the divine, you know? And so they they would be eventually not fucked in the sense of like, okay, we're gonna do it like we used to do it, which is put them up against the wall. And you know, there's in times and dark moments, I understand that. 
And when I first started working with Raghu Marcus, who is, runs the Love Server Member Foundation, in our first podcast, I said, when do we start throwing Molotov fucking cocktails? When do we go? And he's like, stop. He's like, wait. The problem is, the moment you do that, you become the thing that you're so upset about. And if we do that, if the, if, if the next revolution is with violence, if it's born from violence, then it will be in its DNA, there will be violence. In its DNA, there will be the very same thing that it was trying to fix. So holy shit, what a predicament. How do we figure out a way to have a nonviolent decentralized revolution? How do we do it? I have no idea, but I do know this. There's a people, I'm talking to one of them, there's people that are a hell of a lot smarter than me. And if there's people that are smarter than me and there's people smarter than, than you, I'm assuming, then there's people smarter than them. And you know, I think about skateboarding. This kid, he just did like a, I don't know, a one 1080 or something. It's the most insane thing to watch this kid spinning around in space on a skateboard versus skateboarding in the 50s. This is or 60s. We're looking at not even what half half a century. And look at the evolution of skateboarding skills. How long has revolution existed? How long has it been going on? The American, you know, the system of America was an attempt to defuse the revolution being a nonviolent revolution called voting. It didn't work. It didn't work. The politicians got all bought. So that didn't work. But that being said, the revolutionary spirit is an eternal spirit. And my feeling is there's probably really smart people out there, really, really smart people out there have been looking at the game and they've realized, okay, first of all, if you come out front as a revolutionary, just you're done. Second, if you have a structure where you're the guy who's the big revolutionary and people are following you, they're going to take you out and all those people, it's going to crumble. That's a terrible structure. It doesn't work. So my theory would be there might be some compulsion out there from really intelligent people to get people to start waking up subjectively on their own to produce a decentralized revolution, meaning we all wean ourselves from the very stuff they've been, the carrot that they've been dangling in front of us to make us do this incredibly embarrassing jig that we've been doing for so long. <laughs> and, and I don't think there's much they can do to stop it. And the conspiracy theorist side of me really does feel that the closer we get to it, the more we're gonna see really scary shit happen as, as more and more like desperate, fumbling attempts to stop what's happening, you know, become more intense because it's an existential threat. You know, if we're going to say, like Jung said, the sh collective shadow manifests as the corrupt leaders of the planet, then in the same way that an addict, you know, your addicted self is always going to fight you tooth and nail. It's always going to struggle with you. It's always going to want to live. I would imagine we can expect something like that. And I guess the good news is the more we see the flexing of the state or the more we see the flexing of these dominator power structures and the more desperate they seem, the closer we probably are to victory, even though it might not seem like that. Uh, is That's my probably very naive hope regarding I loved evolution. it. It's a brilliant, brilliant speech. Oh, thanks. There was a, <laughs> there was a bit where I was cleverer than you, but then there was a, then immediately there were people that were cleverer than me. I didn't like that bit. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> and then it went right round to you being cleverer than me because it was such a wonderful piece of oratory. It's, it worked. <laughs> I'm sorry. I worked on it all morning. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, man, that's really good. Okay, thank you. Uh, I get a lot from that. I'm like um, writing a book about the how I'm writing this book about the sacred and how my 
Belie- no, say belief because belief sort of feels like a terminal, but like uh, my sense that if we can rediscover the sacred, like you said, that everything is the temple, that this this is the personal journey we need to go on. You know, like that. It, like initially, there were t- there were times where it felt like the the orthodox route to change was like by belonging to an ideology. But now, like individualism is so far along, we all see like none of us see ourselves as primarily an American or primarily English or even God. I don't know. Maybe it's different if you uh, identify with a subcultural group or a, a, a maligned group. But most of us deal with our individuality that's where we come from this voice this constant narrative and i've spoken to people that say that's never coming back in the bottle you know people are never again going to subsume their identity into a sort of a sort of a clan or tribal idea uh, but like uh, this thing you keep saying well, i said several times then about decentralized revolution i think that it's usually significant because we like operate within all of these synthetic structures that like uh, only really exist in order to su- to sustain their own dominion and with this sort of liminal period that we've been granted by this peculiar virus you can see that the like many of the Well, the dominant and driving idea is how do we return to inverted commas normal as if there is a thing called normal, even though it's suspension is a revelation that that it doesn't bloody exist anyway. And that that oughtn't be our aspiration, that this ought to be a time of like, you know, this is precisely the kind of prismic shift that you were uh, saying that could grant us a, a chance to pivot yeah, I mean, this is like a, t- you know, a, t- a really dark idea of psychedelics are an exopheromone. Is the COVID-19 also an exopheromone? Is it a more intense teacher mechanism the earth is putting out? It seems if we're going to not subscribe to the conspiracy, I don't even know if it's a conspiracy theory, but the possibility it was a, a, a weapon, a bioweapon, it seems like it really would be a perfect bioweapon. But Let's just imagine that it did come from what they're saying, which is these horrific fucking wet markets where, you know, they're eating pangolins. Have you ever looked up a pangolin? Do you know what that looks like? Armadillo looking guys. Yeah. They, no one should, they don't look like, you know, the way crack smells, (laughs) like in the smell of crack, it's telling you, I'm not good to breathe. You shouldn't breathe me. It smells like someone microwaved a diaper or something like that. Similarly, a pangolin. You would never eat that. You would never look at that and be like, man, I'm, I, mean, I guess if you were starving, maybe. But the imagine, the imagine these things are in cages and stacked on top of other like baby pandas, you know, stingrays, and they're all shitting and pissing on each other. You know, this is such an abomination to think that the response from the universe would be to create a perfect, a perfect virus. A, something that sits in your body for a week or two, undetectable, spares young people, wipes out old people. It's this terrible, scary, scary thing that reminds me of the stories you hear in Hinduism about Vishnu, you know, about uh, that whenever things are out of balance, Vishnu incarnates. And usually these in the mythologies, it sort of presents some being that has become so incredibly powerful. Usually the being is lusting after eternal life and has figured out a theoretical way to completely um, trick uh, the divine, to trick God. So, and you know, one of the great stories is this king who does some, you know, ridiculous, uh, gets some ridiculous boon, which is like, I won't, I can't die in the morning. I can't die at night. 
I can't die, you know, uh, sitting on a chair. I can't die sitting on the grave. Just this ridiculous list of ways he could never die. And so, and what he could never die. Anyway, the story is that Vishnu incarnates as this fucking terrifying lion and puts this being on his lap and then rips the being's stomach open with his claws and pulls out his entrails uh, to kill it. This is, there's idols. You could look it up. I can't remember the name of this particular being. There's deities of this being, but it represents like shit. Forget <laughs> it. You really thought that you could get away with it? You thought that you would be able to continue this sort of infinite dark consumption and nothing's going to happen? And then the, universe, the earth presents us with this COVID-19, this tiny, tiny little thing, a tiny little thing that has caused us all to go into our houses, stop driving. The carbon emissions have dropped. Just this is nothing. And I think it was maybe it was Bob Thurman who was saying this is like a mild spanking from the planet is what we're getting right now. Just a little like slap on the wrist to put it in comparison to what could happen and may be coming, which is really hard for people to grasp. You know, they don't understand what that means when the sea levels rise or they don't understand what it means when it's always 100 degrees everywhere. This is like a little tiny like, oh, yeah, you should probably take a break for a second humanity because in the whole idea of like oh yeah we're gonna get a vaccine and it's gonna go back to normal okay let's imagine we get a vaccine tomorrow some perfect vaccine and it goes back to normal let's imagine that everyone somehow forgets the fact that we all just had this experience and now we're back in the shopping malls we're buying shit again first of all that's not gonna happen but imagine it did if it did happen how long before the next one they're already opening the wet markets anyway. They're doing it again. They're starting it over already. So I would say that this is an invitation from the earth to do what I think we're both doing, which is deep contemplation, be with our family, be, be a good dad, be a good dad and, and, and a father and, 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 and also learn how to garden and figure out what you can offer people that isn't money. Because I don't know even how long money's going to be worth something anymore. But I know that I've got grapefruit growing in one of my trees and some carrots. And, you know, and I know that if I can learn how to do like construction or paint, you know, maybe I'll have something to offer people. Uh, but that's pretty much, to me, the, the revolution starts there. It's like you got to get independent and not independent in the way you close off to your neighbors, independent in the way that all the shit you've been outsourcing with our with our you know privilege or whatever just try not to outsource it anymore and learn learn i mean it sounds crazy but you know learn basic first aid do you know cpr i'm not inviting people to be preppers or anything like that i'm just saying shit man if i was at a casino and i was looking at humanity over the next 50 years and i was putting bets on what's coming and on one side of the table we have a global utopia and on the other side of the table we have a pretty fucked up um what they call kali yuga you know a, a, a collapse come on where are you putting your money right now where are you putting your money what are the odds gonna be if we put it in that satanic binary what are the odds gonna be you're gonna do global utopia i would do it maybe in a hundred years after everything completely dissolves but over the next 50 years or so i'd say Look forward to some more COVID. God, I didn't mean to put some dark <laughs> shit out there. I'm sorry. But, I mean, come on. What, I, I, this society isn't a computer that you can turn off and turn back on. And it starts working again. 
Why are they thinking that's going to work? Oh, you just turn it off. Turn the whole thing off. California is $50 billion in debt. <laughs> just turn it off. And then you turn it back on and we're all going to be like, let's go to the mall. I need a new iPad. I don't know. What do you think? I think because there's, a, the, the, there's such devotion to the paradigm that anything outside of it can't be countenanced. And I think that the biases are so deep. You know, I thought when our problem, like, you know, 10 years ago in the sort of simple nostalgic hazy glory days of international terrorism when that was the threat like like it was um you know i thought like we already live in a like fundamentalist ideology we live in a fundamentalist ideology that is so entrenched we can't see the horizons beyond it we live like the endless commodification everything materialized everything regarded through that lens that is a religion that's an ideology that was that's so dominant you don't even question that it is one and like so when there is a crisis the 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 model the model has been so devoted to self-sustenance for so long that it can't think beyond it it can't think well is there a different way of doing this could we be organizing society differently and i think that many of the things you said duncan like they seem deeply true to me like that what our focus ought be is individual enlightenment and trust that that will resonate like your man terence mckenna said like you know that that if there is this omnipotent force it's we ain't going to need to approach it gingerly with all kinds of accoutrements and swinging mm. incense you know but the thing's going to just <laughs> i'm gonna come mightily yeah. through us you know like that this this yes. god these forces yeah <laughs> will be like vishnu it'll come through powerful and i feel like um i've heard a couple of people like lately have just said get ready get ready don't worry about some strategy or tactics get you ready and i think that there, yeah there's obvious you know deep contemplation and and uh, spiritual practices but it makes a lot of sense what you're saying like you know become like for too long we've uh, like uh, there's been a kind of I don't know, dismissal of like because of industrialization, because of technology, a kind of dismissal of being able to actually do stuff. Man, there's this book of like, you know, Gandhi wrote these essays and Gandhi is pretty out there, like a lot of the stuff he was saying. But even like in the 1940s, he was going, use lot God, get over your obsession with gadgets and trinkets. Like, stop it. You're in, you're fetishizing objects all the time you need to like he said that he goes there's no point in us having a revolution against the british if we're just going to recreate the power structures that we're booting out with the you know just swapping them over like you said about revolution earlier and what's in its dna he said that india is a country of seventy thousand villages all those villages should be fully autonomous in a trade in where necessary but they're independent where possible and I thought, ah, oh, this is the vision. This is the, like you say, decentralization. I mean, it's obvious there is a requirement for centralization. The current crisis shows us that you need centralization around medicine and who knows and who gets to determine and who gets to decide. But it does, like on an individual level and on a collective level, like kind of, we've become, like when you said about this outsourcing, we've become dislocated, dislocated from reality. Yeah. I don't know how to fucking do anything. That's it. Well, the anarchist term is de-skilled. Oh. We've become de-skilled. And, and, it, and it's, you know, when I was a kid and I heard about anarchy, you know, I didn't, I thought it meant you throw rocks through a window or something. I didn't understand. It's this, on one level, a very humanistic, very beautiful idea that humans are naturally good, which is um, a Buddhist concept too. Fundamental goodness that Things are just fundamentally good. You're part of everything and everything's fundamentally good. But when stuff gets out of balance, when people are hungry, when people are hurting, they, they tend to like 
go into uh, uh, aggressive modes and fight or flight modes, or the new saying is fight, flight, or freeze. But regardless, that is not what a human is. We're, we're, uh, we're judging humanity not by like what humans really are like, but by uh, their defensive postures relating to a completely unnatural circumstance, wow. which is modern society. And it's tragic. And so the, the, the uh, idea is, well, if you allow a human to be as they are in a, in a natural state, they become exactly the thing that you're talking about with your baby, with your kid. This is the most amazing being I've ever encountered. It's not, you wouldn't call it nonviolent. You know, he threw a ball at the dog <laughs> yesterday, but you know, there wasn't anger behind that. It was an, it was an experiment. But there was, there's a, there's an overwhelming sweetness in them. And I think that, that, you know, in um, the Bhagavad Gita, one of my favorite verses is when Krishna is describing himself, he, one of the things he says is, uh, I am the taste in water and the heat in fire. I am the intelligence of the intelligent. I am the original fragrance of the earth. Oh, it's such a beautiful thing to say. The original fragrance of the earth, that sweet, you know, untainted, what it must have smelled like prior to the industrial revolution, what some of us are actually beginning to encounter slightly right now, just because people aren't driving as much and seeing how quickly things go back to the way they were. And so I think it's because we must be a manifestation of the divine, because everything must be, then I think it's safe to say that should we find balance, the only thing that's in front of us is something so incomprehensibly beautiful that we don't even have the words for it right now and to try you know right now we're trying we're like well decentralization <laughs> is it anarchism is it is it are we saying deregulation or regulation all these human words right now they they just aren't they don't suffice it would be i think very similar to a fetus uh and what wait which comes first the fetus or the embryo embryo okay okay the fetus it would be like the fetus you know, watching as it begins to form. And if it had sentience, it would probably be thinking, oh shit, oh shit, I'm losing everything. I'm not gonna be the blobby thing anymore. There's, what the fuck are these bones? Are these bones, what is happening? <laughs> there would be, you know, it would be really terrifying, I imagine. And, it, and, and similarly, I think what we're seeing has gotta be that, right? But to get there, it might involve a real breakdown. And then, and then in that breakdown, you know, my, this is my, deep bullshit naive hope and, it, and it's something terence mckenna i was just listening to this morning said it's like we're on an escalator like this is an escalator it's not steps we're on an escalator we're being inhaled into the divine right now and it doesn't matter the in your mind what you're planning or what it is you think you're doing there's no way out of this situation we're being inhaled it's i just heard on christian radio it's called convection being inhaled into the divine. And I just read yesterday, St. Teresa of de Avila, she said, the, the moment you in intend to diligently pray, everything's taken care of already. It's too late. The moment you commit yourself to it, what she compares to a garden, tending to your garden, weeding the garden, the moment you start that process, by even thinking I'm going to try to connect with the divine, it's done. Forget it. There's nothing you can do anymore. You're being inhaled into what uh, Teilhard de Chardon calls the omega point, the, 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 the place of maximum complexity and maximum harmony. 
And I think that's what McKinnon called the singularity. And I think that's what we're probably experiencing right now is the foreshocks of that event. And there's really not much we could do except have these great conversations, which are a delight, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, <laughs> oh man, you're beautiful. Thank you so much, Duncan. You are too. Duncan. Thank so, you. So, so lovely to talk to you. I've got to go to like kids and that, and I bet you've probably got stuff to do with, I imagine. Yes. This isn't, you don't just exist, do you, on this flat screen? I mean, I've seen you do other stuff. Oh, no. There's that cartoon. So, yeah. That little... Yeah, but most importantly, there's our little babies. And how cool and when is you that? Were, That's what you're thinking. When you were, when you were yeah. saying that stuff, I was thinking, they're real. They're real. I can go out there and I can play with them. They're real. <sighs> yeah. It happened. It yeah, happened. Yeah, man. When yeah. I think of the dark times and the despair and the worthlessness and the loss and the feelings of being contaminated and dirty and now like there is such beauty there is such glory it's it's wonderful yeah man somebody trusts you if they gave you the those sweet babies you know and that's that's what we can lean into and man i really am grateful to you for signal boosting the show and letting letting me ramble like you did you brought something out of me and it's been just a joy talking to you i'm really grateful to you for uh, letting me be on i was very show. excited to talk with you from looking at you in other environments and i feel uh, very uh, validated and enhanced by the experience of talking to you and i really hope that we get to do it again i really would love to spend more time talking with you lovely thank you so much man have a you're great you're beautiful day. cheers duncan see you again mate you are too Hare krishna. Hare krishna. thank you see you well, that was me and Duncan Trussell augmenting a friendship. I uh, first heard him on Rogan, but I watch Midnight um, Gospel all the time, and I urge you to do the same thing. It's really weird. I watched it yesterday. I was watching it. My kid likes it as well. It doesn't seem to matter if you can't understand the more cerebral content. You just enjoy the visuals. Anyway, uh, you can talk to me on in any of the social media site of your choosing, and I will do my level best to respond to you and care for you. Uh, we'll be back next week with someone who's too secret to even begin to mention to you not least because we don't know who they are yet if you want to listen to some old episodes do there's amanda palmer there's frankie boyle check my youtube channel every single day of your life until your final exhalation for new spiritual videos i couldn't love you more i'm just too selfish no i couldn't love you more because it's abundant all right take it easy <laughs>